Ready? Born ready. We are back. It's another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where to Party At. I'm your host, Sabalong. I just got to apologize real quick because I missed you guys last week and I got some notes and texts mm-hmm. saying, hey, what's up? You didn't record? We took the day off for the fourth. At least that's what I'm going to say. And that's what I'm going to stick to. <laughs> All right. But we are back. And if it's good to be in the studio, Keith is here. So you're going to hear Keith on the mic, I am sure, because we got some stuff to talk about that I just know, Keith, you were going to chime in on. Yep. (laughs) So let's start with Atlanta, as we always do, and Buckhead, where we're actually recording. Can I say that? (laughs) 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 All right. So one of the things the whole Keep Atlanta Together Coalition uh, pushed for was a new police precinct in Buckhead. Mayor had mentioned this, and it just opened up uh, just last week. And some of the folks in the audience just might mean that the Buckhead cityhood movement is officially over, or at least one more step closer to death. Uh, So who was there? Well, you might remember this name, Senator, former Senator Kelly Leffler. And, of course, Governor Brian Kemp was in the audience. So it is obviously helpful for Atlanta when the mayor and the Republican governor are not beefing. And so for Kemp to show up, granted it is an election year, but still for him to show up, that means that uh, the tide has turned in the relationship between the mayor and the governor. All right, next up, again in Georgia News, Uh, Senator John Ossoff just announced that he got $8 million in federal funds to conduct what's called a stage one environmental impact study to study high-speed rail connecting Atlanta to Macon and Savannah. So the first thought here is commuter rail, uh, but then the eventual goal is for high-speed rail. Now, I know you just did an applause, but let's be honest. We've been talking about this in Georgia for at least 20 years. So let's see if something happens. The benefit is the Biden administration is seen as pro-transit, pro-infrastructure. It's actually what we thought Trump was going to be. We thought Trump was going to be a pro-infrastructure uh, president, and we would see a whole lot of building going on, but that obviously did not happen. So TBD, I mean, this is the first step, is actually paying for an impact study. And then we'll see what happens from there. I got to admit, I don't know if we had high-speed rail to Savannah. I don't know if I would live in Atlanta. That that would be tough because that, that means you're like, what, 40, 30, 45 minutes from the beach? 30 minutes. Like, you're right there. Ooh. Macon, Macon's popping. I literally was just talking about this the other day. I said, man, if we had high-speed rail, it would alleviate the traffic and the ground swell of the housing. Right. I would move to Macon. Yeah. Catch the trains of the city. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of folks would. Mm-hmm. Keith, we're going to talk about your favorite Senate candidate, Herschel Walker. <laughs> <laughs> so Herschel Walker, his campaign did not have a great week. Uh, they are really trying to contain him as a candidate and contain his messaging. So over the weekend, he spoke at uh, an event for the Hall County Republicans. They advertise it as open to all. But when media showed up, they turned the media away and said, this is a private event. You can't be here. Now, this all happened just a couple of days before the Daily Beast, which, if you're not familiar, is a very left-leaning online news outlet. They just released this exclusive story where someone who's either in Herschel's camp or adjacent to Herschel's camp shared with them internal documents, emails that showed that the campaign staff and the candidate are in a real issue or the campaign staff doesn't trust the candidate. They don't feel that he's mentally fit to be a candidate, much less to be in office. 
Um, now, you might recall, remember the recent news that he had more kids than we originally knew? And so that was one of those things where the campaign staff was like, you withheld this information from us and we didn't know. And then another big thing that happened, Georgia billionaire and Home Depot co-founder Bernie Marcus, he was planning to write another big check to Herschel. And when I mean big, I mean like very, very big. And so he was planning to write another big check. But when he found out about the additional kids, he said, I'm going to hold off on that check, at least for now. So, you know, the big question is, and I think I've said this in a previous episode, that I don't think all these things coming out really change things much for Herschel. Like, Herschel's still going to get Republican votes. But things like Bernie Marcus, if that story is indeed true of him saying, I'm not going to cut another huge check to you. That hurts his fundraising, which hurts his ability to do ads and really engage with voters. And this election is going to be all about turnout. And so if things like this keep happening, I think it, I mean, obviously it just helps Warnock's campaign. And we could maybe just see Warnock stay in office. Maybe. June 30th marked the end of the big financial disclosure period for all these candidates. So who got in the dough? Who raked in the dough? So remember, this was maybe in like February or March, we did an episode and we talked about these leadership committees that Republicans passed. And it was basically a way for each party's leaders to raise an unlimited amount of money while the session is going on. So that means, you know, previously the Georgia General Assembly, when they're in session, which is usually like January to early April, they're not allowed to fundraise because the idea is you're getting money from lobbyists, you're getting money from companies who were trying to get certain legislation passed or certain legislation blocked, and they don't want those funds to influence someone's vote. Right? That's the theory of this. But last year they passed these leadership committees, and it allowed, or this year rather, they passed these leadership committees as a way to raise money even while they're in session. So what happened? The governor has netted $2.9 million since that leadership committee was passed. But the Democrats also set up a leadership committee. And that one raised, wait for it, $18.5 million, which I'm sure they did not anticipate. Yeah, so some of the Democrats who gave money, these are some names you would recognize. Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Brian Cranston, a.k.a. Walter White, if you watch Breaking Bad. And then a lot of unions donated to the Democratic Leadership Pack. In fact, more than $3 million worth of donations just from unions. So, no surprise, Stacey Abrams has raised the most amount of money overall uh, in this disclosure period, she raised $9.6 million. So between the leadership committee and her campaign, she has $18 million cash on hand. So in a memo, her her campaign manager wrote this, and I quote, while we are gratified by the strong fundraising we have secured to date, we understand that our campaign must continue to dramatically outraise and outspend the incumbent, that's Brian Kemp, in order to create a level playing field. And then they went on to compare Kemp's fundraising potential to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which I mentioned on the podcast episode maybe two weeks or so ago, about the fact that Ron DeSantis has raised more than $100 million for his re-election bid, and he has received donations from 42 American billionaires. So that just gives you a sense of what Brian Kemp's fundraising potential could be if he taps into some of the same donors as Ron DeSantis in Florida. Kemp raised a measly $7 million compared, uh, considering that he is the incumbent governor. You would have thought that he would have raised more. So between the leadership committee and his campaign, he has $7 million cash on hand, which is less than half of what Stacy has. All right, now if you're wondering, okay, so if you want to donate to a statewide candidate, you can raise you can donate $7,600 for their primary election 
and then another $7,600 for their general election. And then let's say you have a spouse or a partner, they can also donate. If you have a child that's 18 years or older, they can also donate. If you have a company, that company can also donate. And so that $7,600 turns into a lot of money real fast with just one family. I was just about to ask you, like, essentially, could you, everybody in the family donate, and then everybody in the family has a business that donates, and then you can have a couple businesses per person. So you could essentially donate a million dollars from a family of one with enough people and Right, so you would donate to the campaign directly. And then because they did these leadership committees where it's unlimited, you can donate a million to the leadership committee. So what you're saying is this 7,600 is directly to the candidate. That's right. Mm, mm, Gotcha. Right. So like Stacy's leadership committee, for example, unions, like I think one of the unions, the um, electrical engineering union, I want to say it was, they donated a million dollars just to the leadership committee. Damn. So other statewide candidates, uh, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones raised $675,000 from May to June. Now, he did loan his campaign some money. Um, By comparison, Charlie Bailey, who is the Democratic nominee, only raised $74,000. Now, you might remember from a couple episodes ago, Charlie Bailey was the one who was in the primary runoff against Kwanzaa Hall. But even still, Charlie's got a long ways to go. Now, he is one of Stacey's handpicked statewide candidates, so they'll obviously all run as a slate. Um, But he's still got a long way to go as far as fundraising is concerned. And by the way, Burt Jones is one of the folks involved in the attempt in 2020 for the alternate slate of Georgia electors. Just FYI. And there's some concern on the Republican side that if that is going to impact his race at all, given what's going on with the January 6th committee. Now, could Stacey use some of those, the 18 million to help yes, anybody on her? She okay. can. Okay. Yep. On the attorney general side, democratic state Senator Jen Jordan raised $600,000 in the quarter. Uh, the current AG Chris Carr raised a little bit less and has just a little bit less cash on hand. Now I think in the next couple of months, we'll see a lot more focus and money Uh, going to the attorney general race because of what happened with the Supreme Court decisions and because of what we know the Supreme Court is going to rule on in its next session. Right, I mentioned that in the last episode. They're going to rule on affirmative action, we believe. They're going to rule on um, election-related laws. So the attorney general race is very important. Uh, Next up, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger raised $300,000, $300,000, and he only has 100000 cash on hand. And cash on hand, that just means what you have in the bank. Um, and then B. Wen, who is the Democratic nominee, raised a little bit less than Brad, but she has more cash on hand. She has $400,000 cash on hand. So if it's not cash on hand, it's just pledges? No. So you can only, when you say raised a certain amount, mm-hmm. that means that you had to receive the check. So cash on hand is what you have left after you've paid folks what you owe them. Now, a little known campaign trick is that you want when the disclosure comes out, you always want your cash on hand to be high. Right. So this came out June 30th. That's when that's the cutoff time. So you kind of push your bills back. So to make sure that your cash on hand is nice. Yeah, exactly. All right, so Labor Commissioner, this is an open seat. Uh, Republican nominee State Senator Bruce Thompson raised $150,000, and then he also loaned himself a nice chunk of change. So his total raised was $377,000, and he has $121,000 cash on hand. So William Bodie, who we talked about on the Just Eldridge podcast, uh, he raised $200,000, and he only has $14,000 cash on hand, which is really, really low. He's in a runoff, so he obviously has a lot of, he was in the runoff. Um, so he has a lot of work to do to get his bank account back up. Because 14000 cash on hand is a big problem. You don't have enough money to hire staff and you know do what you need to do. School superintendent. This is another key position. 
The Republican incumbent, Richard Woods, raised 24000 He's always run pretty lean campaigns, and he has $37,000 cash on hand. The Democratic nominee, Alicia Thomas Morgan, or excuse me, Alicia Thomas Searcy, she changed her last name, she raised $36,000, and she has $14,000 cash on hand. So again, another one where it's, it's probably winnable, winnable for Democrats, but they need to raise money. Uh, and then insurance commissioner, John King, he is the current commissioner. Uh, Governor Kemp appointed him uh, because there was a scandal with the previous insurance commissioner. And so like Chris Carr, who is the attorney general, this is his first election, his first time actually on the ballot. So the Democratic candidate for insurance commissioner, Janice Laws Robbins, Robinson, reported that she's actually in the red. She raised less than $4,000. <laughs> Now, I, I don't understand this. This is the only race, only statewide race that went to a runoff that Stacey did not endorse. Janice is not part of the Democratic establishment. I don't know what's going on here if they plan to include her in a slate, you know, and vote the entire Democratic slate. I don't know if they're just like not pushing money her way because she's not part of the establishment. I don't get it. But I do think it sends a signal to other future candidates that. If you're not in our circle, you don't get our support. And I hope that's not the case. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but there is no reason for a Democratic candidate running for statewide office to be in the red and not able to raise money, given the numbers I just told you about Stacey's leadership committee and her campaign. Um, another one where there's a similar situation like this is public service commissioner. So Fitz Johnson is a black Republican appointed by Kemp. He's also going to be on the ballot for the first time. He raised $52,000 and has, and he loaned himself uh, some money as well. He has $311,000 cash on hand. The Democratic nominee, Sheila Edwards, raised $530. $530. And she is also in the red. Again, I don't understand that. Now, I know there's some controversy about Sheila as a candidate, but it just looks bad when you have a she statewide... Also on the outside? Ish, a little bit. But it just doesn't make sense. If you won your election, the party should make sure that you've got some basic resources, I would think. At least make sure you're not in the red. And then the last uh, PSC race, uh, Tim incumbent Tim Eccles... He raised $42,000 and has $132,000 cash on hand. There's a residency challenge going on with the Democratic nominee, um, so I wasn't able to see what she has raised, uh, but she's actually just fighting to actually stay on the ballot first. So we'll see what happens there. She has to prove she's a Georgia resident? No, she has to prove. So the Public Service Commission is broken up into districts, even though you run statewide. Mm -hmm. And so she has to prove that she actually lives in the district that she's supposed to represent. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's some back and forth about if she actually lives in the district, which really should have been addressed in the Democratic primary. Yeah, I thought they handled that. Right. That there's been a lot of, yeah, I think they're still in court trying to. Because what happens if she loses that? Does that mean? That, that means, I think that would mean that he would win by default because the Democrats don't have a candidate. Damn. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have to fact check that, but I'm pretty sure that's what that means. So another Georgia news, uh, the Fulton County District Attorney versus Trump. Uh, Fulton's DA, uh, Fonnie Willis, has made uh, some huge national uh, headlines about her investigation into Trump's attempt to steal the election in Georgia. There is a special grand jury that was issued, that was uh, convened, they have issued seven subpoenas to compel testimony from national names that you would recognize, Lindsey Graham, Rudy Giuliani, one of Trump's lawyers, John Eastman, and another lawyer that worked for them um, to be determined what's going to happen from this. But this is happening at the same time as the January 6th committee. And uh, Lindsey Graham, for sure, has already said that he is not going to testify and so I don't know what's going to happen. Like the January 6th, like, can you compel them to testify? Will you arrest them if they don't testify? I don't know. We'll see what happens there. So stay tuned. Now, what happens in real court? Don't you? 
Don't I they mean, make if you? you're just a regular human being, yeah, yeah they force you to they test. Force you they to force test you to comply. comply. Yeah. I mean, you can just say, I plead the fifth, you know, which is what John Eastman did. Uh, but yeah, m regular folks don't get to do this. All right. One more thing about Georgia Dems. I feel like, Keith, you're going to make a comment here. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, Georgia's pushing to be um, one of the be the first state to vote in the presidential primary. So they released this. <laughs> they released this slick video with voiceover by the head of the party, who is the fifth district congresswoman, Nakima Williams. So take a listen. We're getting our first look this morning at just how much Georgia has grown over the last decade. Georgia has not only grown in size, but the state is more racially diverse. Younger people, more diverse people moving back into the state. I love Georgia! This is a state that for the first time in about 30 years, people are watching closely. President-elect Joe Biden made history in Georgia. No Democrat has won this since 1992. It has been a 10-year project. CNN has just projected President-elect Biden the winner in Georgia. Ossoff will win. Raphael Warnock, the winner. State of Georgia stood up and sent its first African-American senator and its first Jewish senator to the United States Senate. Georgia, the cradle of the civil rights movement. The time for racial discrimination is over we want our freedom and we want it now from the coastal waters of savannah through the farmlands of southwest georgia to the blue ridge mountains and the capital city of atlanta we are one of the most diverse states in the country with minorities making up half of our state over a fifth of georgians living and working in rural areas and hundreds of thousands of union represented workers our racial, geographic, and economic diversity isn't just a stat, it's our strength. A strength that is reflected in Georgia's Democratic leaders who are committed to making sure our state's diversity is represented at the ballot box. A strength that knows how to win. But don't take our word for it. Georgia has become quite the battleground state. A, a real seismic shift going on here in Georgia. In 2020, Georgians voted for the Democratic ticket and sent Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the White House and flipped both of our U.S. Senate seats. Victories that also tipped the balance of the Senate, allowing us to make progress and history. Pleased to welcome Justice Jackson to the court and to our common calling. Just as important as the results, we created the nation's first ever voter protection unit, making sure every Georgian can exercise their right to vote. With our great diversity, political competitiveness, and proven model for battleground states everywhere, Georgia is the ideal state for any candidate to build a strong, inclusive campaign. As Congressman John Lewis said, we may not have chosen the time, but the time has chosen us. The time has clearly chosen the state of Georgia, and we continue to meet the moment. We're going forward! Georgia, the true north of the Democratic Party, is in the Deep South. <laughs> so the Democratic Party is in the Deep South. That's interesting. So, again, this is a push by Georgia Democrats for Georgia to be the first state in the Democratic presidential primary. If you watch that video, you listen to it, you hear very clearly the play that Georgia is the most representative of the entire country compared to Iowa, which is the first state that always gets to vote. So we're, uh-oh, <laughs> what you about to say? I mean, the, but that commercial that we just listened didn't say that. See, what you're saying is very true. And I believe that, and that makes sense. Well, they don't want to poop on Iowa in their pitch. So they're being more subtle about it. Mm, okay, okay. I can say that because I'm not trying to win it. Well, I mean, that, and that makes sense because that's, I mean, that's the Democrats' playbook is that they're so subtle that it's almost that like That it just sleep. goes over your head. Exactly. Right. Meanwhile, Republicans. Are in they, your face. In your, right to the, whatever yeah. you want to hear as your base. I might not do it when I get there, but while I'm campaigning and talking to you, I'm talking to you. But what you said is true. Like I now on that note, I would like to see that because I always wonder why does Iowa get to pick, but then 
Is but isn't Charleston like second or third? Because that's what that's how Biden ended up. No, no. Uh, you mean South Carolina? Mm mm. It's not. No, I it's, think by the time we got to South Carolina, maybe six or seven states had already voted, and so that was. I mean, South Carolina was the turning point. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so what happens is these early states set the tone, and then folks start to drop out because they're okay. like, okay, I don't have a shot. But folks were a, a lot of black folks were upset. It was like this. Yeah. This is happening in states that we're not in. Yeah. Right. And then right. South Carolina happens. Jim Clyburn delivers South Carolina to Biden, and we tell Biden, "You won off the backs of black folks." Yeah. Now I see why Georgia put out the video they did because South Carolina is the black primary. Georgia wants to be the everybody diversity. Mm-hmm. Yep. Fixes in. Uh-huh. So we're not the only state trying to get this number one slot. South Carolina is one of them. Nevada and New Hampshire are just a couple, a few of the states that are in this competition to be number one. I'm back for South Carolina. My bad, <laughs> <My> bad Georgia. <laughs> we're here for South Carolina, number one. Uh, you can't do that. It's gotta be. It's gotta be Georgia. Come on now. You know, I'm, I'm from South Carolina. I know, but we're in Georgia. Yeah, but I know South Carolina black. Mm. George is bougie black. There you go. <laughs> All right. So the push here is that, as I just said, other less representative states are could very well determine the Democratic nominee before minorities like blacks and Asians and Hispanics get that chance to vote. So the Democratic Party is going to determine this shakeup of if they decide to change uh, the order of the states, they're going to vote on all of that next month. So we'll find out. Um, now, if Biden seeks reelection, this won't be a big deal for 2024. Uh, but if Iowa loses the number one slot, this is a game changer potentially for 2028. And I'm, I'm still really curious about what the heck happens in 2024. I think we have to make it past the midterms to see what they're going to do for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I would like to see him shake it up a little bit. I think as I, in Biden not run. Yeah, I mean he can't. He can't. Like it's one of those times where I think if the Democrats did that, that would at least signal boost to the party. We're at least listening to somebody about something. You know, like you might not get anything else, but at least let us, you know, try to win the presidency because him versus Trump. It's looking like how the midterms are looking right now, you know. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think Biden versus Trump matchup is good. And then if Trump is out in his DeSantis, it's going to be a very hard uphill battle. Indeed. All right, uh, sort of brings me to my next topic. Um, you have heard me talk a lot about the fact that we have a big trust deficit in this country. And the numbers are in that prove my point. So Gallup, you guys know we always try to provide some data and some survey results. So Gallup released a survey that shows trust in U.S. institutions is at an all-time low. The very bottom of the list, this is not a surprise, trust in Congress is only at 7%, which is basically zero. Americans do not trust the United States Congress. Uh, The second biggest change in this survey compared to last year is that trust in the Supreme Court fell by 11 percentage points. Now, they conducted this survey before the recent Supreme Court decisions, but after the May leak that uh, the May leak about Roe Roe v. Wade being ruled uh, against um, the previous ruling. So the biggest drop in trust to your point, Keith, is in the presidency, a 15 percentage point drop, which is massive. Um, And there's some interesting party splits, too. So obviously, Republicans trust the presidency less when there's a Democrat in office. And then the reverse is true. Democrats trust the presidency less when there's a Republican in office. But some other alarming uh, points here, Republican trust in the military is down, as is Republican trust in police. Um. (coughs) And Republican trust in the Supreme Court is up, but Republican trust in the church is down. 
And also Republican trust in banks is also down. And I'm highlighting those because traditionally Republicans trust institutions, number one, and they especially trust the institutions that I just mentioned. And so that's a big problem. Now, I would guess on the poli- on the military, I think it's probably about vaccines, if I had to guess. Because the military was mandating vaccines, and and there's been a lot of issues with the U.S. Navy, too. That and um, DOD, they came out against the Roe v. Wade decision. Right, so like, that, yeah, and yeah. they believe the military has become a quote-unquote woke. Mm, yeah. So that would be my guess as to why. Um, but that. trust in police, I was surprised by that one. I was surprised by that, too. Maybe, yeah. Maybe George Floyd made a difference. I, I When don't... they say trust in police, though, like, are they being... When they say trust in police, do they mean, like, trust that the police will keep doing their jobs and not Just get locked up for... You trust in the institution itself. Oh, well, yeah, I can see it being down for Republicans because a lot of police officers are getting held accountable. So mm. I can see the trust being down because if... I believe I can get away with anything, and now I can't. Yeah, my police trust is going to be down. Yeah, maybe so. And a lot of police officers are doing that, you know, kind of fake protests when they're not working either. Right, so the blue flu. If, yeah, so I know if I'm going through some situations, I'm calling the police, and they're not showing up, yeah, a trust overall. I can see it being Yeah, down. we saw that in California. Yep, yep. And, um, like, the churches, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a big one. I think that's everybody, though. I don't it is. It's across the board. But yeah. the fact that it's in Republicans it, as well, like that's a and that's banks, a shift. Both of those is like, I think now that's an American people problem because both sides are saying we don't trust churches. We don't trust banks. You know, that a police thing. That's I think that's a different reason why they don't trust. But churches yeah. and banks, I think that's, that's a problem, especially the banks, especially right. the banks. That, that's right. That's a. It's a big scary. problem. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of scary. Yeah. So another question that Gallup asked last month is how would you rate the overall state of moral values in America today? And your options were excellent, good, fair, or poor. Half of the people who responded said poor. And again, this is across the board, Republican Democrats. But the combination of all these things is really problematic. And I'm not being a Debbie Downer, but it's really problematic. So, I mean, we have a lot of unrest, political unrest, financial unrest, emotional unrest. And it doesn't take a lot for a fire to go from just a couple of embers to the entire forest has burned down. Uh, One more thing about the White House. So they are trying to figure out what to do in the aftermath of the Supreme Court ruling on abortion. And I just got to say this. I don't understand what the White House is doing. or I don't understand why it took so long for the White House to figure out what to do. The Supreme Court leak happened in May. So we knew this was going to happen. And it seems as like they were just waiting for it to actually happen. Like the writing is on the wall. You know, it's like your boss saying, if you don't fix things, I'm going to fire you and you don't change. And then you're like, oh, no, I got fired. Like, what did you think was going to happen? So uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. No, this is your boss telling you, hey, the company got bought out in May and we are planning to move the company Mm. in a couple of months. And you did not try to find a new job, Mm. save your severance or do any of that. And you're surprised that the company doors was locked when you showed up to work. Hey, that's a better one. That's what this is. So the vice president, Kamala Harris, did an interview on the Sunday talk shows, and she was asked um, if she believes that Democrats fail to protect abortion access through legislation. And she said, quote, I think that to be very honest with you, we certainly believe that certain issues are just settled. And then she goes on to say, I believe that we are living, sadly, in really unsettled times. Uh, And then she was asked about, would Congress actually act legislatively to protect abortion? And she said, and I quote, we need Congress to act because that branch of government is where we actually codify rights that, again, we took for granted, but clearly have now been taken away from the women of America, end quote. So... Codifying Roe v. Wade would require getting rid of the 60-vote filibuster in the Senate. 
Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, both Democrats, are against getting rid of the filibuster, even if it's for a special vote. So President Biden, in the meantime, has signed an executive order, which does a few things, but it still doesn't codify Roe v. Wade because that can only happen legislatively. You can't do that. So uh, his executive order, it establishes an interagency task force on reproductive health that includes the Health and Human Service Secretary and the Attorney General. So the Health and Human Service uh, Secretary Becerra, he said that, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, is it Mephiprostone? I don't know. It's the it's the bill, it basically is the abortion pill. It's like, um, he basically said this pill cannot be banned because it already has FDA approval. And there are some states that are saying like, oh, we don't want you to take, we don't want you to administer an abortion by pill because it's still an abortion. Um, so the, the Health and Human Service Secretary is saying that a state can't ban a pill. Um, another thing is he calls for the federal government to increase public awareness on abortion access and care. And then they're also pulling together pro bono representation for those lawfully seeking abortions. So I guess just legal support in the event that something does occur if you are lawfully seeking an abortion. Does that mean like the feds will pay for the abortion? Like what does an executive order for pro bono work mean? So they're basically having the attorney general probably work. My guess is they're having the attorney general work with Democratic attorney generals across the attorneys general across the country to find to make sure that if something happens there is free legal representation for women who are seeking an abortion. The last thing this, uh, one of the last things this order does is it calls for the chair of the Federal Trade Commission to, considers, to consider privacy protections to make sure that you're not being tracked online if you're Googling information about where to get an abortion or how to get an abortion. And again, this is another reason why the presidency is important, because who appoints the chair of the Federal Trade Commission? The president of the United States. This is one of those things that you may not realize, like, oh, why would I care about the FTC? But here's a clear example of a role that they could play in your life that you may not have never realized before. So some Democrats are pushing for Biden to take much more drastic actions, like actually setting up abortion clinics on on federal land uh, and that way saying you can get an abortion on federal land and no one can prosecute you um, and then they're also asking for him to expand the supreme court but he's been very clear in saying that he's not going to do that um, and in fact the white house communications director note this is not the same person who does the actual daily press briefings but the comms director said this and i quote joe biden's goal in responding to dobbs that's the supreme court decision is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. It's to deliver help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose now, just as he assembled such a coalition, coalition to win during the 2020 campaign. End quote. Who said that? Keisha? Ain't that Keisha? No. <laughs> no, this is... His comms director, so but this is the person who the press secretary reports to. Um, the comms director is actually stepping down, I think, at this summer. So I got to say, this is the first time I think I've seen a Democrat publicly acknowledge that there is a clear divide between what the activist wing of the Democratic Party wants to do and what mainstream Democrats are pushing for as it relates to abortion access. I mean, we heard this on the on the podcast episode about abortion that we did, right, where you have abortion should be available at all times, no matter what, whenever. And that's just not where the majority of Americans are. And it's not where the majority of the Democratic Party is. And so it's interesting to see the White House push back and say that is not the general public uh, point of view on this issue. There's three things I want to mention globally, just because they're so big, and I think we should have we should pay attention to them. Two of them, I think, could have some impact um, in America, but to be determined. So, number one, the former prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was assassinated while giving a speech for his political party. Uh, gun violence in Japan is very rare. There's like one gun death by homicide. 
per 5 million people. And just to compare, in America, we have just over four deaths per 100,000 people. Um, obviously, we're a much more populated country, but it's still quite drastic even when you uh, compare it by population. So it's always shocking to hear an assassination, especially in a country like Japan. Um, so prayers up for Shinzo Abe's family and his loved ones. I wonder how serious it was, too, because they said the dude it was with a handmade gun. He handmade like, the gun. They didn't even have guns no. like that. Out and there, he so. had uh, bombs on him and other weapons on him. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's odd, to, particularly to assassinate someone who's not even in office. That that was strange. Japan's elections, um, you're hearing this on Tuesday, Japan's actually took a, had elections on Sunday. So I don't know if this will impact the elections or not, but um, just very strange. Um, another big thing that happened, and you should like go on YouTube and watch the video because this is so fascinating to see. A protester, protesters stormed the homes of Sri Lanka's president and prime minister, and they said they not, they're not leaving their homes until the president and the prime minister quit. And when I say they stormed the homes, I mean, they literally took over the compounds. The armed guards were there, and they just stood by as folks, like, jump in the presidential palace pool and, like, go to the bedroom and, like, jump on the bed. And they literally took over the entire compound. So one woman who's 61 years old, she brought her daughter and her grandkids, and she said, and I quote, they enjoyed super luxury while we suffered. We were hoodwinked. I want my kids and grandkids to see the luxurious lifestyles they were enjoying. So why is a 61-year-old woman so outraged? Inflation in Sri Lanka is 54.6% and rising. Dang, dang, dang. Sri Lanka's federal government said they believe inflation will go up to the 70s. By comparison, we are complaining about inflation in America and it is just over 8%. Huge difference. The country's running out of gas. The country's running out of foreign uh, foreign money. It is a complete disaster. So I don't know. I'm bringing this all up because I don't know if the U.S. will, you know, feel the need to get involved at all. Sri Lanka does neighbor India. And there's a little bit of, you know, worry about American and Indian relations, especially as it relates to Russia and China. So... I don't know what's going to happen there, but that's just a very fascinating one to um, bring up. And it just also reminds you of how blessed we are in America. And the last thing in world news, um, a big thing that happened in Great Britain, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, was forced to resign. If you're not aware, he's often called the Trump of England. Um, he was one of the lead people pushing for Brexit, for Britain to leave the European Union. So there was basically this 33-hour period that happened last week where his cabinet members started resigning and his party leaders told him he had to step down. And he tried to you know, do everything possible to avoid it, but he finally said, okay, I'm going to resign, uh, but you know, I'm putting in my resignation, but it's not going to go into effect until you all pick a new leader, which is going to take another month or three. It's not like an immediate snap the fingers and they elect a new leader. Although they could, but for whatever reason, they're just choosing not to do that. There's no role of like a vice president that we have here that just feels... Like no, it's, it's done by the parliament or by the party. And so um, the rumor is that his next job, he's not going to go away from British politics. The rumor is his next job is that he will be the special envoy to Ukraine. And so, again, another reason why I'm bringing this up is because America has invested billions of dollars into the Ukraine war, um, and, in, and Great Britain's one of our main allies, so we should always be paying attention to what's happening over there. By the way, one of the reasons why he's forced to resign is because of lying about scandals and things that he didn't know, but he did actually know uh, as it relates to his some of his cabinet members. Dang. All right, this week's party pooper, and let's get into our party starter. What's rule number one? Party? No, not party. No, it's not party. Turn out the lights. The party's over. <laughs> the party's over. Close the gates. What? All right, party's over. Everyone go home. 
I'm the party pooper. <laughs> so, um, I just want to be clear. I'm not naming this woman my party pooper. I'm naming us, the people, the party pooper. So, State Senator Tierra Mack, I'm sure y'all have seen this video now, of Providence, Rhode Island. She posted a TikTok of her twerking on the beach upside down, which I must say was quite impressive. And it had a lot of folks <laughs> up in arms. I'm just saying, she's clearly athletic and talented. So, at the end of the video, she says something to the extent of, like, vote Tierra Mack, right? And she's saying it as a joke. She's at the beach in a bikini, like, you know, on her off, off time. So her Republican, the Republicans in Rhode Island, like tried to camp, like fundraise off of the video and say like, oh, these are democratic values at work here. But my favorite response is from the governor of Rhode Island. Take a listen to this. TikTok over the weekend, twerking on the beach. I have not seen it. What, what was the term you used? Twerking. <laughs> twerking, I don't even know what that means. Upside down, you'll find a question, why did you? That was fun. That was lit. That was lit. He could get away with saying that. Right. He's like, what is twerking? Twerking? What is that? Um, You know what twerking is. They did it all on the Grammys. (laughs) You saw WAP. So so my party pooper is us because we have videos like this that just are a great example of how America has just turned into a nonstop outrage machine or we just jump from one issue to the next, one crisis to the next. I can't believe this person did that. I can't believe they said this. Politics has always been a gladiator sport or a spectator sport, I should say. But right now it's feeling real reality TV gladiator like. But I'm saying like, do you. Are you not entertained? I'm saying is it. Are you not entertained? (laughs) Are you not entertained? I think. Politics Solid has turned joke. into <laughs> politics has turned into entertainment. I mean, I we had the weed smoking politician. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. We had the gun toting Republican. Yeah. We had the uh Rhino Hunter. Rhino like, Hunter, it, it's right. Go, it's going crazy, but as a black woman, you don't feel like she misrepresented y'all? No. Oh, okay. No. I, I think it's it's manufactured outrage. Now, if that were, you know, in my political consulting life, like, would I want my client to do that? No. Okay. Okay. Well, that's what I was trying to get at. You went it by, but okay. Political consultant, put your hat on. Your client just was twerking on the beach. She's already a senator. How does she capitalize? What does she do? What advice would you give to your Mac? <laughs> I was going to say do a, a twerking ad. <laughs> <laughs> Get your booties to the pole. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let's get it started in here. Oh, I'm the party starter. What's rule number one? Party. Uh, all right. This week's party starter as we wrap up here. Um, it is the people of Croydon, New Hampshire, a town I'd never heard of. Uh, but the New York Times just wrote this really fascinating piece about this tiny town of 800 people and how they got a wake-up call that if you don't participate in your community you open the door for disruption. So the gist here is that New Hampshire has become like this haven for libertarian types to come in. And there's actually this group called the Free State Project. And they've been moving to New Hampshire in like large numbers. There are over 6,000 people so far because New Hampshire kind of has like that small town America, low taxes, you know, easy, easy living vibe. So Croydon, the way they operate, it's very democratic. And by that, I mean the town leaders propose the city budget and the public, the residents, approve it. Um, That's definitely not the way we do it in Atlanta. In Atlanta, our elected leaders propose the budget and they vote on that budget. So one of the town leaders is affiliated with this free state, with the free state project folks. Um, So he 
he had them pass the city budget. And then the next thing they did was vote on the school board budget. And he proposed that they slash the school budget in half. Now, Corden, if you remember our episode recently, is kind of like Maine in the sense that there aren't enough schools for the kids to go to public schools. So they go to a mix of public schools and private schools. And that's all subsidized by the government. So this guy said things like, you know, extracurricular activities like sports and music were basically charity and that the residents shouldn't have to pay for the kids to be doing these extracurricular activities. So the budget passes, slashing the budget by more than half, um, in part because a lot of folks did not attend the meeting, right? And so what happens is one parent finds out and he says, it's going to cause me an extra thousand hours of work a year just to send my kids to school because the government would no longer be subsidizing it. So why are the people of Croydon, uh, New Hampshire, my party starters? Because this thing happens and it mobilized the entire town. Democrats, Republicans, independents, they all got together to figure out how to overturn this vote. And then they started talking to their neighbors and they called a meeting to actually indeed overturn the vote. And why that was so big is because according to their according to that town's bylaws, at least half of the eligible voters in the town had to be present to overturn a vote. And they came out in full force and they did it. I'm putting a link to the article in the show notes that's free to read. Only 800 people in the town. Only 800 people in the town. So more than 400 half, people showed half up. Half of the eligible voters, half the people who were who were voters showed up. But this is a perfect example of what happens when political flamethrowers do something for ignore the consequences and everyone else has to clean up the mess. And in fact, the guy who led this effort to slash the budget, he said this, and I quote, less stress on me. I just threw the wrench in the machinery and now you know the school board has to clean it up. And this is exactly what we saw with Trump. This is what we saw with what happened on January 6th and all these other things where the folks who IDGAF, someone else has to come in and clean up the issue. So the author of the New York team, the New York Times piece wrote, the central threat to democracy is complacency. Oh, this will never happen here. Someone else will go advocate on my behalf. My school board member, my, my city council member, my state senator, they're going to do the right thing. That's not how democracy works. And this was a great example of that and of people uh, spurring into action and changing their community. So with that, that is today's show. As always, thank you for tuning in. We'll have another great show for you next week. 